Hello and welcome to our April podcast here on The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. We're going to begin this podcast with a short humor piece written by Simon Rich. The piece is called Oatsy, and it gives us the perspective of Paul Revere's ride from that of his horse, a horse named Oatsy. Growing up horse, I do not expect much from life. My ten older brothers all end up in stable. My sisters become glue. When I am small, my father run off. That is not figure of speech. One day for real, he just run into woods out of nowhere. Everyone is like, whoa, that crazy. It is not happy barn, but I have one escape, running. When I am doing gallop, I do not think about how little hay we have or where I will next find salt. I think only of wind in my mane as I surge through the air like bird. In that moment, I am happy. I am free. Around this time, I meet human. His name, Paul. Paul Revere. He was not big star then. He was just regular guy from Boston. Laid back, funny, easy to carry. We become close and tell our secrets. Turns out we both have same dream, to make big mark on world. One night when moon is up, we make pact. If one of us make it, we both make it. Together, there is no stopping us. Then one day we see British coming and I am like, this is it, this is our chance. We can ride to town and tell people British are coming and it will be like this big thing. Paul is scared and he is like, are you sure that is good idea, Otsi? And I am like, trust me. I know what I talk about. So Paul cannot run fast because he has fat legs, and also he is human. So he is like, hey, can you do running part? And I am like, of course, I will carry you whole way to town. And when we get there, you can do speaking parts since you are not horse and you know English and can talk. And he is like, deal. So then I carry him through brambles for hours, and he shouts, the British are coming. And the next thing we know, everyone is cheering, and I neigh at Paul like, told you so. So army guy says, okay, now you meet John Hancock and Sam Adams. And I am like, whoa, this is big time. But when we are walking to meeting house, something strange happens. Paul ties me to post, and I am like, why not me go inside with you? And he is like, well, you do not have tie and blazer, and also you are horse. And I am like, huh? This weird. And then person from newspaper jumps out and he's like, Paul, Paul, how did you ride so long through night? And I snort because, of course, Paul did not ride. I rode. He just clung to my back with eyes closed, crying whenever his face got brushed by leaf. So I smile at Paul, expecting him to correct newspaper man. But instead, he's like, I rode so long because I care revolution. And I am like, whoa, Paul change. So after that, Paul become this big shot. Poem come out about him and it is made into famous etching. And meanwhile, I unemployed. And my horse wife is like, how about you get work pulling carriage? And I am like, I save country from British. I am not pulling around fatzos all day. And she is like, have you been drinking? And I am like, I might have stopped by brewery and licked puddle. But what is wrong with that? I am full grown horse, back off. And she is like, what is wrong with you? And I say, there is nothing wrong with me. There is something wrong with world because they do not realize it is me who made Midnight Ride. 
And she is like, yeah, with Paul steering you. And that is when it happens. I kick her. And she is like, that's it. It's over, kids. Let's go. Pack up hay. We're leaving. And I am like, wait, i sorry. Can we talk about this? But she is gone. She just run into woods out of nowhere. And I am like, whoa, that crazy. So then everything just fall apart. I go from licking brewery puddles to licking distillery puddles to just licking whatever puddles I can find, like who cares, get it in me. And I find myself trotting around glue factory thinking maybe I knock on door and tell them, go ahead. Everyone asks me, why did Paul treat you so bad? I am not psychologist, but I have theories. For example, not everyone aware, but Paul has small penis. I could feel when he rode me, so maybe that make him crazy. There is also a romantic angle. Like, again, not everyone aware, but Paul's first wife, Mary, and I, we sort of had, had this thing. One time late at night, when no one was around, she was like, I would rather be with you, Otsi, because I know Midnight Ride was your idea, and Paul stole credit. And also, Paul has tiny penis, especially compared to horse, but I have to stay with Paul because of image. And I was like, who cares about image? Let's just love each other and enjoy each other's bodies. And we did share one special night, but that is all I will say about it, because it is private. I know that some people, when they read this book, they will think, maybe I made some parts up. For example, some people will be like, how did you say those things to Paul? You were hoarse, you cannot speak, and you even said that yourself early on in book. You said you cannot speak, but then there is so much speaking throughout entire book is inconsistent. Fine. They do not have to believe me. That is not why I write this. I write it for my 37 horse kids, so they know the truth and not the lies. Everyone says you must be bitter. Paul Revere is big, famous icon, and your legs are failing, and soon you will be glue, probably within a few hours, because you are in cage at the glue factory, and they are doing you, like pretty soon. But anger is like salt lick. Every day it shrink and shrink. And I think that when I die, my last thought will not be Paul's betrayal. It will be that moonlit night, that ride through the brambles, the feeling of wind in my mane as I surge through the air like bird. For a moment, I was happy. I was free.
just heard Sidney Bechet playing Indian Summer. Sidney Bechet was born in New Orleans in 1897 and died in Paris in 1959, where he had become immensely popular through his years playing the clarinet and soprano saxophone at a club called Le Vieux Colombier. His career spanned the era of ragtime, the pre-war big bands of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, as well as the beginning of the modern jazz era. He played in a band with Louis Armstrong when the latter was still wearing short pants. He played with all the notable musicians who came out of New Orleans and also performed with the well-known singer Bessie Smith. I'm going to read an excerpt from his autobiography called Treat It Gentle, in which he describes what might have been his professional debut on the clarinet. There was another time I remember it was my brother's birthday and there was to be a big party, all a surprise. He wasn't told anything about it. My aunts and my mother and her friends had cakes special made for it, special shellfish, a whole lot of food prepared. Everybody in the neighborhood had been invited and they were all going to spring in on our lawn to surprise my brother. And best of all, there was to be a band. It was Freddie Keppard's band and had been hired for it. All that day, I was racing around among the women, watching all this preparing for the party, being real excited about all the going on, the way kid will be when something's to happen. And then the people began to arrive. It was a real big party. And finally, the band came in. They set themselves inside the house and waited, and when my brother came home, they let go all at once, and the people came jumping out, shouting surprise. Well, it really did surprise him, all that going on, people running around, the music. And after all that had gotten underway, the party sort of settled down to the music. There was dancing, people getting together, things being real lively. The people, they were all over the house and the lawn, and the band was playing back in the kitchen. As it happened, it had been understood that the clarinetist, that was George Baquet, he was a fine musicianer, wouldn't show up till later. He had another engagement on a parade, so the band went along playing without him for a time, but it got going real good. The music just took off and went ahead, being real happy about itself. I stood around there hearing them play. I was standing back myself in the entry to the kitchen, and I couldn't help myself. This was a band that was answering all its own questions. The way they played, it got me terrible strong. It was something I couldn't change and something I just couldn't do anything about. I knew I was too young for them, but I sure wanted to play along with them all the same. So I sneaked away. If I can't play with them, I told myself, I'll just play along with their music. I sneaked off and got the clarinet and went into the front room where nobody was at. It was a sort of dentist's office. My brother was studying to be a dentist. I went in there and I sat down in the dentist chair. It was dark in there and I began to follow right along with the band with that clarinet of my brother's, the one he had given me. At first, no one heard me, but then the way I was told it, people began to take notice. They hear the clarinet, but they knew George Baquet hadn't shown up yet. Well, they figured maybe he had shown up, or maybe some other musicianer was taking George Baquet's place. And then the men in Keppard's band, they noticed it and began to look at each other. Who the hell was playing? Maybe they thought it was a joke of Baquet's. Maybe he was back somewhere else in the house where the party was going on. 
the musicianers, they were having their own damn party in the kitchen. There were people there too, but mostly the crowd was out front. All this time, I didn't know anything about what all was happening. They told me about that later. I was just having myself a hell of a good time, improvising, following along, not thinking a worry. It was just entire natural to me, just a whole lot of happiness to be playing in their orchestra. They didn't even have to know it, just me. I wanted to know it. But they prowled all around, and at last they found me. They opened the door, and they couldn't believe their eyes. At first, they couldn't see anything. The dentist chair was so big and the room so dark. But I was still playing along like there was still music going on. Only I was playing real soft-like. They stood there looking at me as if they couldn't believe it yet. And finally, one of them laughed and said, Well, you're off a little, but we heard you and you were sure playing like hell. So they brought me back there, back into the kitchen with them, and they put me in a chair by the window and they gave me a drink. And then it was almost the same, almost the same thing, only now it was the big thing. It was real. I was back there with them. I was playing in their orchestra. They were all still so surprised they didn't know what to make of it. Me, I was just happy. I was really there. I was playing along with them. I'll never forget that feeling I had back there in the kitchen with those men playing along. Those men, they were masters. Ragtime didn't have to look for a home when they were playing it. They really gave me the feeling of being discontented until I'd be able to work regular with them. Oh, it was grand. And then, after a while, Baquet showed up. There was an alley right in the back of the house, and the kitchen had opened onto it. And being summer, the window was open. Baquet came along this alley, and he heard the clarinet, and he wondered who was playing it. Who the hell was taking his place? He stuck his head in the window, and he looked around. He heard it, but he couldn't see it. He kept looking from side to side, but there was just no clarinet where he could see it. But then he looked down. He saw me there in the chair. He just saw my head. He saw me and he couldn't believe his eyes. About all he could see was the clarinet. Well, I guess that was a surprise for him too, but he came on in and he took out his clarinet and he ran his hand over my head and he just laughed. And he kept me there all evening, playing right along beside of him. That night, I guess I was the richest kid in New Orleans. You couldn't have bought me for a sky full of new moons. And I was six years old. At the end, Baquet asked my mother if he could give me some lessons. And my mother said, that's real kind of you, Monsieur Baquet, but I don't know how we'd pay you. And Baquet said, you just let Sidney come to me, and he and I will fix that up. And in the end, that's what we did.
Sidney Bechet and company with a tune called Black Stick Blues. Bechet was a fully professional musicianer, as he would call it, by the time he was 13 or 14 years old. Playing with adult men and living away from home, he wanted to be like them in every way. Let's listen to another excerpt from his autobiography in which he embarks on seeking a wife. But I still didn't know, really. So much of how things were, I didn't understand at all. I'd hear the men, they were always talking about their women, and I'd see how they all had such pretty women, how some of them, they were married and all. I wanted to have a girl of my own. I wanted awful bad to be like the men. So one time, when I was about 14, I saw a chance to get myself a girl. That was really something the way I did, one of those crazy kid things. There was this girl I had seen around. She was pregnant. The fellow she'd been going with had just gone off and left her. And I got to thinking about that, how it was really something for her being left like that. So I figured I'd marry her. I figured I'd go tell her father I was the one who had done it. I'd make a confession, I figured, and that would fix it for sure. I wanted so bad to have a wife. So one evening I went over to the house where she was living and I asked to talk to her father. He come out then and we sat talking for a while and I told him finally I was the father of the child. This was to be a man-to-man -man talk, I made him understand, and I was setting to do the right thing. I wanted to marry her, I said, and we'd have a real wedding. He didn't answer. He didn't say anything at all about what he was thinking. He sat there quiet-like for a while, and then he told me to wait some. He left me there, and he went off and bought a gallon of wine, and he came back and said, here, let's drink some of this. Then he took a drink and I took a drink and we sat up that way most of the night sitting there on the porch passing the wine back and forth and talking around all about everything, just talking. I'd never been used to so much wine and it sort of got my tongue loose. I told him all how sorry I was this thing had happened, but it would be all right, I told him. I was aiming to do the only decent thing. I told him all how it was with me getting along in the world. I'm sure I can support a wife, I told him man to man. I'm working pretty regular, I said. I earn 75 cents a dollar a night in the district. I made him understand how it was, how I was a district man. That's really something I made him see. That was supposed to convince him I was really a man, so he'd be all the more willing to let me marry this girl. Meanwhile, we kept passing the wine gallon back and forth, and I talked and talked, and I finally just talked myself to sleep right there on the porch. That man, he let me go on, and when I was sound asleep, he picked me right up in his arms and carried me home. I wasn't living at home then, but being how I was drunk by this time, that's where he took me. My mother told me about it later. He took me home and he put me to bed, and he explained to her all about what I'd wanted to see him about. You tell him not to do anything like that again, he told her. He's a nice boy, but he's sure desperate. You gotta have a talk with him. You gotta tell him to be careful about going around doing a thing like that. Someday he's liable to get himself a real trouble. It just happened, he said, I know the boy who harmed my daughter. It wasn't your boy at all. And then he left. I had a hell of a time the next morning explaining to my mother why I'd wanted to marry this girl. I was kind of embarrassed anyway. I tried to explain to her that everyone they're married and I wanted to be married too. And here was this girl needing a man, I told her. Well, why couldn't I be the father without making it? I couldn't see that made any difference. That just didn't enter into it. What was I to know about all that? I just wanted to be like everyone else that had himself a wife. 
My mother, she said about everything she could say. She was real understanding about how it all was. She explained that ain't the way at all, how you got to court a girl. You got to meet her first, be with her a time, and how marriage follows after that. Why do you want to marry a girl you don't know anything about, she said. And she went on to explain all sorts of things trying to make me understand. But, you know, mostly I think about that man, how he acted about everything. Most fathers would have had the shotgun out for the first male that came along ringing the bell. But that man, he acted so wonderful, understanding about everything. He just let me talk and talk, let me go on about anything I wanted to say, anything I needed to say. All those things I'd been thinking about, he didn't care what it was, he just let me talk it out. I've thought about him many a time. We became real good friends later. There was a kind of understanding about him.
Babylon, written by Al Jolson, performed here by Sidney Bechet and company. <laughs> Folks, thanks for listening. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts. We're going to close out the podcast with Everybody Loves My Baby. Mm-hmm.